I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. My guest on Facing the Giants is Julie Macklow, founder and CEO of The Macklow, positioned as the world's first luxury American single malt whiskey. Launched in late 2021, the Macklow whiskey is aged for seven years, bottled at 46% APV, that's alcohol by volume, and priced at $1,500 each, with only 237 bottles produced for its initial release. Julie is a trailblazing serial entrepreneur who turns her lifelong passion for single malt whiskey into a luxury brand. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me. Super excited. Me too. So Julie, you've had quite an active and varied career from running your own hedge fund to backing fashion businesses to launching your own luxury skincare line and now introducing a luxury whiskey brand. So first, could you share a little bit about your professional background before launching the Maclow? Absolutely. So I, I have an unusual background, I would say, in that I, you know, like so many people have college started in finance. I was, um, first in Goldman Sachs mergers and acquisitions for a summer internship. Then I went to um, what was then Chase Capital Partners, became JP Morgan Partners. And I did private equity right out of University of Virginia. And I was fortunate enough that they needed an international analyst. So I got to spend a little time in Israel. Then I moved to Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong working career for almost two years. And that was after spending a couple of years in New York. And I returned and um, I was offered an amazing job at a hedge fund by this woman, Karen Feinerman. She's still on CNBC. And I worked at Metropolitan Capital for about four years. Then I decided to go play with the big boys and Steve Cohen needed somebody to run his consumer retail fund. So mm-hmm. I raised my hand and went over to work for Steve Cohen for, I think what seemed like eons, but it was <laughs> four or five years or so in the heyday of, uh, you know, lots of uh, action was going on in hedge funds and mergers and acquisitions. And I did consumer and it was the wild, wild west for sure. Right. And I went from there to work and run a fund for Israel Englander, who um, also you know, needed a female PM. Um, we put under my name, Maclow Asset Management, but it was really Izzy's capital of, I believe, 250 million aside. And that was, you know, also a really cool time. And then I was sort of doing it one day as one burns out quite quickly in the hedge fund industry, having done it about 15 years. Um, I was just making sort of a side investment. Some girls who went to HBS and did a cool company, they were starting called Bobble Bar. And I gave them some seed capital, I think $100,000. You know, I proceeded to watch what they did. I was like, you know, it looks much more interesting to actually get run a company. I'm sitting here doing cash flow statements, balance sheets, and, you know, I can build a model with my eyes closed. I'm like, it'd be actually great to understand what inventory numbers mean, like, hard goods, working capital, et cetera. And I sat with one of my friends who's now 93, a guy, Larry Leeds. And he's like, you know, the best recommendation I can give you is take a break from finance, go work at an actual company and try your hand at running a company. So that was sort of the inspiration of, hey, I'm going to do something else. Then I started thinking about why I really like might have some skills because really I had no skills outside of finance. And I realized like everyone always told me I had great skin 
And I was always traveling all the time. And one thing that kept happening to me is I kept having my toiletries taken every time I would go through a TSA flight anytime. So I actually was on a travel on suitcase to my girlfriend's wedding in Versailles. And I was like, they took my um, toiletries. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to create a kit. So I created this like gorgeous metal kit. I called it the it kit. And that like your five essentials, which is where V-Bute, the name of my company came from, which was an eye, a face cream, a serum, and a night cream, and an exfoliator cleanser. And then I remember taking that kit to Bergdorf Goodman, to Linda Fargo. I actually ran into the other day. And I was like, hey, this is my kit. Um, I want to sell it Bergdorf. And she's like, that's great. Looks awesome. But like, where's your full size? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll be right back with that. <laughs> So then I went to, you know, one of the trade shows in Hong Kong, sourced some packaging. And that's basically, you know, a longer story how we started with Vibutane, the skincare. And it, it was quite a process. You know, I had to work with a copywriter, a friend of mine who was working at NARS helped me. Um, you know, we were, it was a longer journey. We ended up being in about 200 boutiques like Fred Siegel, Bergdorf, Nordstrom's. And then somebody said to me one day, you know, you're really much more of a storyteller. Um, you're, it seems like you're on planes traveling all the time from boutique to boutique. Why don't you just go on Home Shopping Network? I was like, huh, that's an option. So sure enough, Mindy Grossman, who I knew from investing in Nike was running it. I reached out to Mindy and, you know, they give you like, I think nine minutes your first time to make it or break it. Luckily we made it. And I ended up doing HSN for about seven years, night and day. Um, I, I think people see it as a very glamorous thing to do, but it really is around the clock. When you're down there, you pretty much don't sleep for 36 hours. So right. um, I, I sort of did that for about seven years. And then I got to a point where I had my later in life child, who's um, five now. And I was like, you know, we were about to launch an organic skincare line. So we got to point of no inventory. And actually they got acquired by QVC in that period. And it honestly just became not fun. Like they took away the snacks, they took away the hand towels. Um, all the people I loved outside a couple of the hosts had left because they left during the merger. I was like, you know what? I don't really like doing this. And the reality is, if I really were to step back and evaluate why I had a skincare company, I'm not sure I could tell you to this day why I had one, <laughs> outside the fact that I have great skin. I mean, I really use like a $9 Vanna cream. I've never used expensive skincare, yet that was what I was selling. And I'm like, you know what? Well, I really like whiskey. I've got 2,000 bottle collection in my cabinet. Well, I know how to do is packaging and marketing because I learned how to do that while I was obviously doing the skincare business, launching 14 SKUs a year. I was like, but that's not my passion, like scotches. And when I looked at my collection one day, I was actually putting it away. I were, and I was like thinking to myself in a new bar, Annabelle Seldorf had created that's pink and red. That's in my presentation. And um, I was thinking to myself, I've got amazing whiskeys, like an Old Elgin 1936, uh, Strathila 1954. I've got the entire Glenlivet Cellar collection, Bowmore Globus, um, amazing things like the McCallan edition one through six, two of them. And I'm like, I've, you know, 
hundreds, if not thousands of bottles of whiskey stuffed through my closets and stuff. I'm like, there's Irish, Japanese, Taiwanese, Canadian. But I realized there was nothing high-end that was actually made in the US. I was like, that's so crazy. Like, why don't I go create it? And so that's how this really started. I was like, I'm going to just go follow my dream. Obviously, I had lost my mind completely. So what was the first thing you did once, once the mm-hmm. idea hit you? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing I did was, luckily for me, I was hanging out with an Isla Scotland, as one does, from, you know, very famous people out of a very well-known distillery. Mm-hmm. And I was with them. I'm like, hey, guys, um, I have this crazy idea. I want to do a luxury high-end American single malt. I was like, but I need a great blender. Could you put me in touch with somebody? And they made the introduction to Ian McMillan. I was super lucky for me. Ian had never worked on an American project. Um, he did, he's got 50 years in the business, Glengine, Deanston, Bonahaben, Bladnock. Um, he's a Netflix film about the industry. He's that famous. I told him about this crazy idea to do American single malt, super high end luxury. And luckily for me, he said yes. And so that was sort of where the Maclow idea was born. Um, Then I signed myself up for Moonshine University. And I actually went to barrel unification and charring class for a week Hmm. to really learn about char levels. I visited Kelvin and ISC. I went and toured a bunch of the distilleries, talked to a bunch of potential partners. Ian obviously knew the distillery world much better than I did. Um, And we ended up partnering with these great guys down in Danville, Kentucky Wilderness Trail because Dr. Pat Heist really was the knowledge and the expert of yeast. And the only thing that goes into single malt is 100% malted barley water and yeast. So they had the knowledge and the know-how. They had made one tiny, tiny batch that had been aged. So we knew they could do it. And we ended up really being their exclusive partner in American Single Malt. Um, Luckily for them, they just sold to Campari for about $600 million, which means that will remain always true because I don't imagine they'll be making it for other people going forward. Right. And they were amazing partners. And that's what's going to actually launch in a gold clad bottle that will come out this, we hope this fall, obviously as one more summer to go through. Um, and that'll be our Kentucky edition. That will be our main release. Still super limited, but to just put in context, we'll get about thousand bottles, hopefully in our first bottling what's in the black bottle in our private collection what you see on the shelves for very expensive prices is product we found from this tiny little distillery bull run during covid Um, we were fortunate enough because you know people did crazy things in covid that we were able to acquire these exceptional casks Mm -hmm. in um tasted tons of samples he really wasn't keen on any of them we came across a handful of just 24 barrels that actually only first sold me the first 10. Then we convinced them to sell us the last 14. And that's what's in these private casts. In love them because the tastes were so consistent across the barrels. Um, they'd also been made in ISC wood. 
similar to our story, they start in char three, we then migrate to char one, but the taste was spectacular. We then took those barrels from, which we probably shouldn't have done in retrospect, we took them from Oregon down to Kentucky. As Kentucky goes from 100 degrees down to 20 degrees, right. it made much, much quicker, which obviously makes the taste much more mature quicker and really changed the liquid in a way we could have never even imagined how much more amazing it became. But just to put into context, our first barreling, we got their single cast, so we bought a one barrel at a time. In addition, one, I think we made 257 bottles. Our last barreling, we got 189 bottles. So those pesky angels take a lot more when that happens. When you were um, working with the distiller in Kentucky, you know, you've been a whiskey enthusiast for a while. What was the most fascinating thing that you learned about whiskey that you didn't know before you yeah. became that close to the process? That's actually, so I didn't know that to make malt, single malt, it costs about three times as much as making bourbon because barley is so difficult to source versus corn. The crop itself is harder to find. We want to make sure our stuff was non-GMO and organic and locally sourced. So just that whole process was much more difficult. We also, as I mentioned before, I spent a lot of time on wood because they say almost 60% of the flavor comes from the wood. Mm -hmm. So we started out making char three, similar to the one we acquire. Bourbon, just so you put in context, is char four. The char level is how deep and how long they burn the wood. And the darker the char, the more the wood takes the flavor of the whiskey quicker. So we ended up moving actually very quickly into char ones because we realized in Kentucky, the aging process happened so much quicker than we expected. And that was part of the class I took as well. So we also then, you know, the bourbon guys typically like to have their barrels as high as possible in the distillery, in the rickhouse where they store them. We found because barley is such a delicate crop, we actually store it on the lower levels which is, you know, all of, again, we put that to Ian. Last and part of what was Ian's genius when you tried the sample, we actually decided to proof it down to 46% versus going for a cast strength. So that would be a super smooth, drinkable product that would really appeal to everyone because part of why I did this and when you look at my bottle shape, um, I created a bottle that I felt like would appeal to both men and women. And actually it was during COVID, I'd fully designed the bottle. It looked totally different. One of my friends in the industry said to me, you know, Julie, this bottle just doesn't remind me of you. Like, it's not a wow. I was like, huh? He's like, you can do better. And so because of COVID, everyone had a little bit too much time on their hands. So did I. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, what do I really love? Like, I really love flasks. I really love jewelry. So I took this Hemmerly ring that I love and we started sketching me and my designer, the idea of like a flask. And that's actually what our bottle is patented globally and we've won tons of awards on design. But the idea is it's like a flask because I never like to be without my alcohol. It looks like a luxurious handmade whiskey flask with the bottle framing, it, you know, the precious amber liquid. And you told me what the inspiration was for that. What do you want to say to the customer when they look at that? Well, I think it's about, so if you look at the logo, it's actually buildings 
that they're little M's in mm-hmm. the crown. I think it was one homage to like the real estate family, husband's family has. Um, obviously the symbolism of a crown was paying homage to Scotland and the mothership of England and the whiskey business itself. But we want it to be American. And so even sometimes when I looked at the bottle design, I was thinking, oh, it's almost like a window of a building. And I'm staring at 432 Park as I say this, which <laughs> my father-in-law built. I basically thought like it was this idea of power because I feel like that's what whiskey does bring to people. And this idea of being empowered. And that was sort of what we thought through. And we really wanted to have a design that almost referenced a Tom Ford perfume bottle at the same time and was elegant where women would be drawn to it, not just men. And I think that's like when you look at some of the attempts by the industry to appeal to women, they're often done by men, not done by women, right? Right. And so, you know, Johnny Walker is a great example of how that can go wrong. We really wanted, because I am female, but obviously I love drinking whiskey and I love the idea that whiskey is a powerful drink and my guy friends drink whiskey. We want something, honestly, that was like non-binary that would appeal to both of them and to everyone. So typically bourbon and rye whiskeys dominate the American spirits market. You know, American single malt is young and swiftly gaining popularity. Yeah. So well, from well, a- it's, it's not even fully approved, right? So TTB right. put it under category review to approve a process last September 27th. We're part of the Craft Distillers Association that has been trying to get this through um, as of this moment is still not even actually an approved category, but the goal is that it would become one. Ah, so from a Whiskey 101 standpoint, what sets an American single malt apart from other American whiskeys? Is it just is it the type question. of grains that yes, you use? Great question. So by definition, bourbon is 51% corn. If you have malt whiskey, it's 51% malt. The definition of single malt, if it goes through, it would be that it's 100% malted barley made at the same same distillery. Got it. And there's a bunch of other stuff that goes behind it, but just to keep in a nutshell, rye by similar definition would be over 51% rye. That's why you often see a lot of ryes call out 95.5 or 100% rye. We actually made rye and bourbon barrels but we will not release them till probably six years or so. In, in various interviews, you've compared the Maclo to a Birkin bag, a Louis Vuitton suit, Gucci yeah. belt, a Ferrari. So Absolutely. what what makes a luxury whiskey? For us, the cost of the product has been driven by the barrels were extremely expensive, over tens of thousands of dollars each to acquire. You can divide that by 189 bottles that we yield. We hand number and hand sign every single one. So you can identify it with QR code. Um, And then we're hand stenciling and painting every single bottle by hand. We're not making money on these private collections. What defines to me a luxury brand though, to get back to your first question, is the experience. It's the brand itself. Mm -hmm. It's how it makes you feel. For instance, when I go out and buy a Louis Vuitton bag, I am buying it as a status symbol. 
And because our bottles are $1,500 MSRP, which is driven by the liquid costs, it means my shots in the restaurants, we see them from two to $400 all day long. And our consumer is drinking our whiskey because it's fantastic product, it's great packaging, but just like buying an Hermes belt or a Louis Vuitton handbag or drinking Dom Perignon, it elevates your status. The same reason you drive a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or you wear a Rolex watch. And that is, I guess, a background that I come from and that my friends are from. So I frankly just created a product that was meant for our social group and that would resonate with myself and people I know. Yeah, that this is an expensive whiskey and you're clearly targeting a very specific luxury buyer. And you were saying before the initial release of those 237 bottles went to, I think, a select group of high-end retailers, restaurants, bars, and other influencers. So actually 90% are yeah. on-premise, which means you can't even find it. If you're a retailer, you can't even find the bottles. Yeah. Pre-allocated, they sell through before they even hit the shelves. The majority, probably 90% of our bottles are in restaurants, which is, you know, restaurants mark up the liquid, right? They've got to make their margin too. But what it allows us to do is have a lot more people get access and try the liquid. So they really helps us build our customer base. And the goal is that the private collection, these single casts, we only release four a year. It's under a thousand bottles a year that we're releasing. That's tiny, 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 right? Kentucky edition, which will be a gold bottle that'll come out, um, we'll launch at Food and Wine for press. That will be our MSRP $250 bottle. That will be your $40 to $60 shot. It'll be much more accessible. Who do you see the customer that will gravitate to the Maclow? Right now or when we launch the new? Well, now and when you launch and how, how do you think they'll differ? So look, we're right now in New York City in about 140 restaurants on-premise accounts. We're in Aspen, Colorado, I think of about 20 restaurants. We are in Las Vegas, California, and Texas. And by Texas, I mean Dallas, like Highland Park, you know, places like D. Lincoln, Houston, and Austin. So it's super limited to the best restaurants, the best venues, like Aldor Jean George, Danielle, the Polo Bar, Casa Cipriani, 11 Madison, I 11 think. 11 Madison, the Flatiron Room, Casa Lever, Catch, Baccarat Hotel, like those sort of places, right? And the list go on and on. I think the gold bottle will be really our first opportunity to allow people to actually get a buy bottles because we'll finally have hopefully some inventory for off-premise locations where actually people can buy, take home, enjoy the liquid. $250, while it's still luxury, it's obviously much more reachable for a lot of people as well as I think the list of restaurants that are able to carry it and the people can buy it. Obviously there's a big difference. There's plenty of tequilas that sell between 40 and $60 all day long. There's a much broader customer base that can purchase 40 to $60 shots versus two to $400 shots 
which I think we can say is the 0.111%, 0 0.001%. Right. That was never my goal to just target that customer base. We only launched that private collection because these exceptional casts came on. And we thought they were so good that we want to share it. And it was a great opportunity, frankly, to get the Maclo name out, get it associated with whiskey, and really get people to understand the kind of quality product that we would put in the market. The Kentucky made stuff that Ian and I really worked on from scratch that will launch in fall, really for October ship. That will be exceptional product, but it will be different. So will the new, the, the gold bottle one that you're launching, will that appeal to more of the true whiskey enthusiasts? Or are you hoping that you've created a brand Look, that I customers think our, who may be intimidated by whiskey find worth exploring? Yeah, so I think our goal is that, and I say this as somebody who is a whiskey snob, who is an enthusiast, who reads tasting notes because I'm bored. Um, and I love like just reading whiskey reviews and books. I think whiskey got to a point that it is too snobby, too unaccessible, too difficult to understand. My goal is to make whiskey fun, <laughs> to be able to say to somebody, you can drink that because you like that. You know it tastes good and that's enough. You like the bottle, you like drinking it, you're having a good time, that's all that matters. Drink it because you like it, not because you're told to like it. And I think we've sort of gone against the grain there. I do hope that it obviously appeals to whiskey enthusiasts, snobs, etc. But the reality is Ian is one of the best blenders in the world. I trust his palate over pretty much everyone. And we have some other people behind the scenes who are as expert as he is. And the goal is to appeal to the consumer who is buying our stuff more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters to me. And I think a lot of the reason a lot of people, including women, don't drink whiskey is because there's this culture that you have to understand every single tasting note and be able to, you know, break it apart. And that's just not true. Like you can sit home and have a whiskey and just like the whiskey. And that's, I think, the path we're trying to follow. Do we have tasting notes? Do I train every single restaurant? I was at Delilah's in Vegas this week, Wally's, um, Smith and Walensky's recently. You know, we walk through every tasting note and give highlights, but that's not the goal of selling this product, is to have great tasting product and great packaging and a product that appeals to the customer. And I think that's sort of been a different approach than traditionally has been taken in this industry. Much more like, by the way, when I drink a Krug or a Dom. Yes, do I QR code them and know one vintage of Krug to the next? I do. But do most people? Absolutely not. They right. just know they're drinking a bottle of Krug. There's always an ability to go dig further, which I love for people who want to do that. But I also don't want to leave out the 80% of people who frankly just want to drink what they like. And you've generated quite a bit of buzz around the brand and some of the high-end fashion and luxury titles like Vogue, Town & Country, Bloomberg, and others. How else are you marketing the brand right now? Or do you anticipate marketing when you launch the new uh, product? 
Yeah, so we're working on a really cool limited release with a designer for our gold bottle. I'm not going to give any details on that. Okay. Um, but I think it's fair to say- A fashion I, designer. Yep. Okay. I have a very strong foothold with the design world. And I think a lot of what I'm interested in doing is doing collaborations with different designers around different bottlings, no different than Dom Perignon would do with the Lady Gaga, right? And they have, you know, the Warhol, they have the Kasama collab now. I, I think that interests me because it's authentic to who I am, much more so than a, oh, edition one, edition two. In fact, if you look at my back label, well, we have addition to every single bottle by hand. We don't really call it out. We call out that's the private collection. So there's still, again, that layer for people who want to really get into it. But we're really focused on building the brand, the Maclo, not building, you know, I think it's fair to say a lot of companies over skew to a point that you can't understand what's going on. So looking out over the next five years, how do you want the Maclo to grow? Look, our goal is to stay in luxury markets. What does that mean? If you don't have an Hermes or Louis Vuitton or a Tiffany in that city, it's very unlikely you will see my brand. <laughs> um, it means that we are targeting luxury customers with the best quality, the best product. We put amazing amount of craftsmanship and time and effort to make sure that happens. We have already put together four different SKUs. We have a different color for our rye, a different color for our bourbon. And I would like the Maclo to be a household name with a luxury customer, which I can tell you is already happening. And I have a great little story because I feel like stories are almost the most powerful thing you can have. Let's hear it. So we launched in Dallas. And one of my buddies from YPO was like, hey, Julie, I'm going to go to this place called the Park House. It's a very famous members club. I'm going to go crack open your whiskey. It's $170 a shot. But, you know, we're buddies. I'm going to do you a favor. Needless to say, he goes to the Park House. We're not even on the bar menu. I have not done a staff training there. We've just sold in the bottle. And he's like, I'm at the Park House and I'm getting the last ounce of the whiskey. He's like, what the hey? And I'm like, so that to me is a great example. They ordered another case the next day of people do relate and get that as a luxury product. We were in an amazing place called D Lincoln's up in Fresno, right outside of Dallas. And I went to train their 150 people who they did staff. We get there, the bottle was half empty. Again, not on the bar menu yet. People know luxury when they try the product. They know quality when they see a bottle. It's no different than why do I own a Himalayan Birkin bag? It's because I know it's a great product. It's limited. These are super limited. We, our last bottling was 189 bottles. And those 24 casts of which we're now going on to our seventh bottling, I can never replicate that liquid ever, ever again. Once it's gone, it's gone. And people understand that and collectors understand that. It would be as if I was offered a Bowmore Black 
when it first came out. Like those are first editions you always want to get as a collector. So I think people really collect understand the value to that. I think people who drink our product most importantly love how it tastes and they come back to buy more. And in you know New York City, when on our first year, when our six PO, so the fact that we're getting reorders, the fact that somebody like Casa Cipriani is on like their sixteenth bottle, that's what I care about. That people love the product. It was really funny. I'm trying to book a heli trip for next February with a group of friends, and the heli operator was like, "Hey, how do I get that Maclo whiskey?" And I'm like. <laughs> The fact that the hella tour guide who like yeah it's out in the wild now whiskey like that's pretty cool like i'm like that's awesome so whiskey brands have caught on to the potential of the booming nft space and are now selling digital assets alongside their physical bottles is this something that you're exploring so funny you said that so when we're doing a limited release and part of that collab is an NFT will be associated with each oh. Um, It's funny you brought that up, but I'm not going to say who it's with, but it's going to hopefully be super hot. And I'm, I've never done an NFT. So I'm you know excited to see how that works. I think our limited set, it will be for holiday release, um, hopefully the end of this year, that will have a hundred bottled edition period and each one will have an nft and obviously as you know there's a premium for all of that but julie macklow founder and ceo of the macklow good luck with everything thank you so much for coming on facing the giants absolutely thanks for having me drink your macklow whiskey <laughs> <laughs>